Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast with me, Mark Cribb, where today I am chatting to Kate Nichols from UK Hospitality. And they're the group that are sort of representing the hospitality industry across the country and liaising directly with government and have been partly responsible for some of the incredible help and recognition that we've had, I guess, from central government uh, over the last few weeks about the importance of, uh, of the hospitality sector, but also things like, you know, the retention scheme and the loans. A lot of those uh, have been focused around our industry. So it was great to sort of find out from Kate exactly what's been happening, you know, how close that ear to government has been and, and a few surprises such as the amount of time I guess that they were working in advance and seeing this uh, unfurl because of their links through to sort of international players in the hospitality sector, some of which were getting impacted before the UK was with regards to uh, either to travel or to sort of occupancy rates at hotels. So they were really that ear to the government in telling them what was going on uh, globally uh, and helping them get ready with a sort of a, a, a kind of a, a smorgasbord I suppose of uh, responses and things that could be put in place to help. Um, we had a good chat around the issue of speed and how quickly the industry needs this money and why we need it so quickly partly because of the time of the year that we're in and just the fact that hospitality doesn't tend to hold a lot of cash reserves in its banks. Uh, we spoke about the possible needs of grants rather than loans if we want this to be a very deep v-shaped recession rather than a very protracted sort of long-term recession we might need to look at some of that help that's coming from the government and the form that it's coming in but also potentially that shared responsibility you know with the landlords and whether they can get access to finance cheaper than than the hospitality sector themselves because of some of the assets that they've got and they could potentially leverage some finance because we are all going to need to work together to uh, have any chance not just of the hospitality sector but the economy in general of bouncing back after this uh, and then we end a little bit around uh, the community and some of the supports that uh, that's been really encouraging to see both from how the sort of local people are, are really supporting and getting behind their their local bars and their restaurants but also on a national level how we as an industry are helping out the nhs and helping out by supplying food so uh hold on tight kate speaks fast she's got an incredible amount of energy i really enjoyed uh talking to her and i very much hope you enjoy the conversation thank you Kate Nichols, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate you are a very busy human from what I can see going on, at least in your Twitter feed at the moment. Uh, how are you? Uh, I'm not doing too badly, to be honest. Yes, it has been a bit of a manic three to four weeks, uh, much worse than it normally is. But uh, I think we're hopefully coming out the other side and, and starting to get back into a bit of a rhythm of normal life. Excellent. Well, look, thank you on behalf of the industry for everything that you've been doing. Um, for people that don't know you, can you just explain what is UK Hospitality? Yeah, so UK Hospitality is the national trade body representing hospitality businesses. So um, hotels, pubs, bars, restaurants, cafes, visitor attractions, uh, the, the whole of the industry, third largest industry in the UK, 3.2 million. 130 billion pound turnover and it's my job and my team's job to be the face of that industry to government to champion the industry uh, in the media and the press and with investors uh, to talk to the government about the kind of supportive legislative environment we need to push back against unnecessary legislation and to promote the the jobs that we do of providing great quality jobs investment and support for our local communities so i think it's the best job in the world uh, and it's my privilege to be the, the champion and defender of the thousands and thousands of independent operators and large chains who make up our vibrant industry. 
That's a pretty awesome answer. And it's lovely that this industry is full of so many enthusiastic human beings. Uh, so, uh, yeah, congratulations. Um, Thank you. Can I just check? You you represent not only just the members then, although you have a, a paid membership, presumably, but you, in essence, you represent the industry in its entirety. Yes. I mean, we, we do. We have a paid membership. We have a hundred member companies between them they have about eighty five thousand outlets so when it comes to the core hospitality businesses of pubs restaurants and hotels we represent about 95 percent of the industry uh, and therefore as far as the government is concerned that means we are the de facto voice of the industry the face of the industry um, even though we don't represent we don't have everybody within membership obviously the strength that we get is from the breadth and depth of our members so the more people join us the bigger imp- impact we have in government um, and I'm also chairman of the tourism alliance so I do have a sort of a voice as well for the whole of that tourism sector and the valuable work that that does, which means that I cover more thousands of independent operators than are actually in membership. But yes, as a shameless plug, the more members I have, the more powerful my voice. Yeah, no, perfect. I think you'll have more and more signing up uh, after some of the work you've been doing recently. I think we're all pretty grateful. Is that a, a paid membership? Is that how it works? Yes, it does. It, it's based on the size and scale of the company that's involved. So it, it ranges from about uh, £250, £300 uh, for the smallest independent businesses right the way up to the national chains that have a, a sliding scale. Um, and then it's paid on an annual basis. And in addition to all lobbying, there are free legal helpline services, support, advice, guidance, briefing notes on how to comply. Uh, We take legal challenges against people like PPL who are trying to to impose high charges on the industry. Uh, And we also provide quality assured advice on food safety and food hygiene. So by being a member, you can save a lot of money on the normal uh, HR advice, uh, food safety advice, environmental health that you would normally pay an external expert for. We're there as uh, the, the best practice guidance in the industry. Amazing. Okay. Sounds great. So presumably it sounds from all of that, you've been exceptionally busy anyway, but in the last few weeks, I'm guessing that almost all of your focus has been taken up in the, in the response to the, uh, the coronavirus. Is that fair? Yes, that would be fair. I think you know, <laughs> somebody was talking to me and saying it was it's two weeks that have changed the restaurant industry. Actually, my team and I have been working on the COVID crisis since the end of January when lots of people were saying, what on earth are you thinking about this for? Because it's not something that's going to affect us. I am so glad I ignored all of those people saying, "Just this is just an issue in China, don't worry about it. Because we were so well prepared then as far as government was concerned, giving them an inside track on what was happening in hotels. The hotel market in London first started to feel the effects of this in, uh, towards the end of January. Restaurants and, and pubs and bars in London went into it in February, and then the whole of the industry was subsumed by it. Um, middle of March, for many people, it came as a complete bolt out of the blue when the announcement was made about closing down premises. But actually, we've been working with government um, to know the direction of travel and to make sure that we were at the front of the queue when the support was being given out to protect those businesses at the very start of the process. Um, back Way back in the 11th of March, when we had the budget, the Chancellor was making representations and saying what he was going to do to help hospitality. That was because we had the foresight to see what was coming down the track. We were advising our members from the end of January about what was coming and how it was being impacting on uh, similar businesses in China and across Southern Europe. 
Um, so, you know, far from being a bit of a Cassandra, we were a leading light to say the canary in the coal mine is hospitality. The whole of the economy is going to be affected. You need to get your ducks in a row to make sure you've got support for these businesses. Otherwise, you will lose the third largest employer. Um, so, from it sort of gradually increased the workload of what we were doing. But then from about six, seventh of March, we were just being 20 hours a day, seven days a week, lobbying government to get the support the businesses need to stay open and to protect their teams. Uh, well, that's really interesting. And and the speed that we saw the government step in and some of the responses, uh, I think we were all impressed by. But I, I'm, I'm even more impressed to know that you had the foresight to see it coming so early, although it felt like in some ways we were watching it unfeel, un, unfurl in slow motion from China. Why was it that you were, were so on the case? Was it your members telling you or were you actually proactively kind of, you know, researching what was going on in China? Uh, well, it, it was a bit of both, really. I mean, obviously, representing a large number of international brands, we had uh, feedback directly from the hotel companies who were in China, but also in Southeast Asia and seeing what was happening to the global travel market and the decimation of business travel and the effect on a whole economy when you lock down part of a country, which is what happened in Wuhan. Um, so obviously, you know, we have companies like Merlin, Hilton, Marriott, they have sites across that that region. They were seeing the changes and we could see the downturn in, in visitor numbers and occupancy. Uh, and then obviously then switching into London, the Chinese market, I think the, the UK government closed the direct flights from China back at about the 20th of January. So we were one of the earliest countries to actually take steps to prevent the virus reaching us, which is why there was such a long interregnum between China clearly having problems in the middle of January and it hitting the UK really in the middle of March. Um, but we could we saw that. So we saw occupancy levels fall in the central London hotel market. Um, and we saw the knock-on effect that that was having on visitor attractions. So Back in early February, you had occupancy levels that were down sort of 60%. Footfall in places like Bicester or um, the, the British Museum, where you've got large Chinese and Southeast Asian visitor groups who just weren't coming. Footfall in those areas was down 80%. And that was way back at the beginning of February. So we could really see what was going to happen if this crisis went on longer. And as more and more of the foreign tourist markets looked down, and you had travel restrictions, including from the US, you could see that the tourism market was going to be adversely affected. And then you could see what would happen in the domestic market. And so we were we were right in there with the Treasury the sort of two weeks before the lockdown happened, explaining what was going to what we would anticipate would happen to footfall revenue, telling them about what was already happening on footfall and revenue in London. We could see that declining on a on a daily basis as more and more people worked from home throughout February um, and just making sure that we had data. And I think that's been the key. We've had a good amount of data. We've had really solid experiences coming through from our members, evidence of what's happened on, on the ground. That's what's made the difference in getting the government to take us seriously and to give us the kind of support. We've had really strong evidence base um, and we've been able to support and help the government by giving them those insights as to what consumers are doing, how quickly consumer behaviour is changing and what else they might need to do to nudge. Were the government surprised by what you were telling them? Because from an outsider, it looked uh, like we were a little bit slow to respond in that in that early time. And I think they caught up very quickly a little bit later. But when you were telling them about what was happening across the industry and what you were looking at abroad, was did it feel like you were giving them new information and they weren't really uh, aware? Uh, no. I mean, I think 
uh, I've seen a lot of stuff on social media and Twitter about government reactions. I think what, what people have to bear in mind is that this is a bigger crisis than anybody has ever had to deal with in government. Normally, you deal with either a public health crisis or an economic crisis or a jobs and social crisis. I've never, had, in 30 years of working in politics, never seen a simultaneous crisis across all three that has actually unfurled at such a pace. So as I say, if you look back at the the medical experts that were talking about what was going to happen and the epidemiologists looking at what was happening in China. Um, that discussion was live around 20th of January as this is not just a China issue, this is going to be a global issue. And from there to, to sort of a, a month and a half later, it engulfs the UK economy and it hits simultaneously public health, economy, jobs, society. I've never known a government have to deal with all of those sort of things. And I've been hugely impressed by the way that they've responded at speed, at speed and at pace. I mean, yes, they might not have always got everything in the right sequence that we would want. Yes, there hasn't always been the urgency in giving us the detail of how they're going to respond. But the response has been unprecedented and the situation they're facing is unprecedented. I don't think they were caught by with anything that we were telling them, I think what we were really usefully able to do was to give them the real-time examples of how it was unfurling and what it was meaning in practice, um, rather than just in theory and rather than just looking at it from a public health point of view. It's always very easy when you're looking at kind of uh, public health crises to ignore the economic side of it. And that's the valuable part that we were able to add into it to make sure that they were juggling those three plates simultaneously, uh, rather than just dealing responding in, in, in a one-dimensional way. Mm. I think there were a couple of things that came out very quickly. Probably the forfeiture moratorium sort of, sort of you know, for, for people's rents was great. And that job retention scheme, I think there was a, a cheer across the country for Rishi that night that we all realised, you know, as, as you've said, we employ 3 million people across the country. We were on the brink of having to make most of those uh, unemployed. And that was a, a fantastic response. What are the current kind of focus, having got some of those big wins in, which were, you know, incredible, what are the current things you're negotiating on and focusing on? Well, I think it's just making sure that all of those things that we, we were working on previously are nailed on and buttoned down. Um, yes, the big principles have been outlined, um, and you've touched on some of those. There were a lot of very late nights and long periods of work well before anybody in the industry had picked up on these issues the week that the closures happened. Yeah, I think there were a lot of people in the industry came in and helped to support and drive home the message. But the hard work had already been done in terms of getting those principles sorted. We still don't know enough detail on furlough to make sure that we can accurately pay people on a weekly basis. And there's obviously the cash flow challenge of how do you get from here with this principle and the commitment from government that we will reimburse the employees to actually getting that money through. It's still a real cash flow squeeze for most, most businesses. Restaurant businesses in general only sit on 16 days worth of cash reserves. So they have already burnt through that. And many of them were burning through that, certainly in central London, well before the closure orders came through. I was going to say the timings of it, I think, as well, isn't it? Because we were coming out of the winter and a significant amount of the hospitality sector relies on summer revenues to get through the winter. So coming out of the winter, we were already sort of hanging on for dear life. So it was it was yeah. bad timing just before the clocks change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and certainly if you're looking at the tourism and um, the, the wider hospitality industry, you know, hotels, visitor attractions, etc. 
um, all of those are, are sort of cash negative at that point in the cycle when you're looking at uh, March, April. Um, it was just coming up to the opening of the big tourist season. And I think that's why the furlough details have been so challenging for so many people, because um, you've got large numbers or large volumes of people who are being recruited in February, not starting work until March. So that's a big issue that we still need to resolve with the Treasury. Um, making sure that we've got a debt enforcement moratorium and a proper insolvency framework that is is sufficiently relaxed to allow business decisions to be made and spending to be made um, to keep the companies trading. We need the protection from the enforcement that is coming through from landlords and equally landlords need protection from debt enforcement from their banks. Um, the other big issues then that, that, that we need to work through is, is finance. You know, very early on, they made big pledges about a £330 billion fund to the Chancellor said that any business that needed it would have access to um, good quality government-backed finance on attractive rates to pay for their rent and their salaries uh, and their suppliers. And we still haven't got that. You know, about 80% of hospitality businesses fall outside the scope of those two lending schemes. We've got a stranded middle who are the ones that employ the largest numbers of people, are facing the tightest cash flow squeeze and are desperately clinging on by their fingernails to get through to um, the furlough payments coming at the end of April. And they don't really have access either to the grants that have been made available through the business rates regime or the loans that the government has made available. So we need to make sure that we've got finance for them so that they can do what, what, what the Chancellor said, pay their people, pay their suppliers, pay their landlords, pay their rent. Um, otherwise, we are going to have the contagion lots of hospitality businesses falling over, large numbers of jobs lost and the contagion spreading up through the supply chain. So the Chancellor really needs to plug that gap and that, that's the big issue that we're continuing to press on. These are great initiatives, brilliant principles and unprecedented response hasn't flown through to the businesses that need it most and we're two weeks on from businesses being closed. Yeah, well, it's good that you're letting them know those challenges. Speaking from my personal experience, exactly the same. You know, we we don't have the cash flow. We committed to pay the team fully uh, in in March, and our payroll is about one hundred and twenty thousand pounds a month. And as things stand at the moment, it's not possible for us to pay. And a lot of those people would normally be paid two weekly, and we're asking mm-hmm. them to hang on until the month till the end of April. Uh, and unless the money comes from government, we will not be able to pass it down. So thank you for for bringing that to their attention. And bang on the same with us in the fact we're a seasonal uh, town. So across this town people were recruiting uh, in february employing in march lots of people were ready to go for the start of the season which really is now over the easter weekend and the clock changes mm. and all of those people have fallen out of the uh, of the kind of bracket because they were employed yeah after the 29th of february so uh, good luck trying to get those measures sorted um i was chatting to mitch tonks actually earlier today from uh, from rockfish and he was chatting also about the sort of the long-term support i think his payroll was was you know more like a million pounds of mm. support he was going to be looking at from the government over the next few months but also recognizing that if that gets switched off overnight we furloughed all of these people but we're unlikely to open fully when we can open and there's likely to be a period of time and it may be quite some time to build the business back up so the government recognized that this isn't sort of a switch on switch off scenario and there's going to need to be longer term support i don't think they've really got their head around that yet they're still in the eye of the storm trying to staunch the bleeding as it were um and and uh, sooner or later we are going to need to have that conversation um i think it's it's 
everybody seems to recognise that that initial three-week closure period is likely to be extended. I mean, we're already sort of a week and a half through that. It's inevitable that we're going to get an extension because it doesn't look as though we're coming out of this the other side in, in a week's time. So we need next week to start talking to the government about planning for recovery, about phased and uh, a well-notified return to, to opening uh, and how they intend to do it. Because I anticipate that, that it won't be a sudden massive switch on and everybody goes back to normal and everybody's allowed to open. Um, I suspect that they will move towards a more gradual relaxation of social distancing. We need to make sure that they're making sensible and pragmatic decisions about the types of businesses that can reopen and in what way and what social distancing rules might still be enforced. So, for example, in Holland, um, the discussion is that, that when the social distancing measures are relaxed, it will be restaurants and terraces that reopen, uh, not necessarily pubs and bars. Now, we need to make sure we've got some flexibility and some understanding within government about the nature of the type of businesses we operate, particularly in coastal and tourism destinations, where the distinction between a restaurant, a pub, a bar and a hotel it is a bit moot. Um, and also, we need to have notice. You cannot just turn on the industry again overnight. It was hard enough to close it overnight, but that's manageable. You can do all of that behind the scenes. If we're going to stand up kitchens, people, a workforce uh, and provide that same offer, then we need probably two weeks notice. And also what we're talking to the government about is, is to say that that will inevitably be gradual. You can't, even if we are fully able to open, you can't cut off the support at the same time, you need to taper it because it's highly likely that these businesses will be opening with reduced capacity, with reduced demand, uh, and still therefore needing support for some of those workers that they can't fully re-employ. And I think there was a survey out yesterday by CGA, which suggested that consumers were already saying that that a third of them were less likely to go out and eat and drink at the same volume that they did when social distancing ends. So I think there will be some societal and cultural norms of behaviour that have changed over the course of the, the closure period that we will need time to adjust to before we get back to normal service. Yeah, I think you're right. I think people will be partly they'll be nervous about just going out in sort of social gatherings and partly, you know, the financial implications of what we're seeing across so many sectors means they may not be able to afford to do so. Um, that point on coastal towns specifically, I guess, is, that, you know, again, that we make all of our money in the summer to get through the mm. winter. So I think we're working on best case scenario of maybe some sort of release in, in July and August. Again, you know, chatting with Mitch and others that recently has been if we cannot open at all for the summer, we're actually better off not opening until next spring. We all run Absolutely. at a loss the winter uh, and that's a long time to try and support businesses for isn't it yeah absolutely and I mean that's the point that we've made to ministers uh, and equally for those highly seasonal businesses where tourism is the key driver you know potentially when you unlock it if travel restrictions are still in place there may be some pent-up demand from the UK customers to go out and have their holidays in the UK but you have a finite capacity, both in terms of weeks in the year that are available to you and also the capacity within your businesses. So it's not as if you're going to be able to be like a factory and turn back on the taps and make up for lost time um, and lost revenues by suddenly producing more. You know, if they said everybody uh, is now able to open and we get the, the green light in July, you've still only got the six week summer holiday. Um, and then that's your peak earning capacity 
before you get to the the, the sort of autumn. So it, it is going to be hugely challenging, and these businesses will need support through the recovery, particularly around the big costs of rent and people. Um, and if we have this longer, my, my big fear is that we have a second wave and we have a second period of closure. And I think that that will be more damaging for these businesses that are on a yo-yo, opening and closing and not being able to provide that certainty than having a slightly longer period of closure now, but then being able to trade through the summer. Um, but it's undoubted that demand is going to be suppressed um, and revenues are going to be suppressed. And it's going to be a, a very tough environment when we open. We'll need government to be as supportive as possible and to resist any attempt to impose further additional costs and regulatory burdens on the sector. Yeah. And whereas at the moment, you know, even with our landlords, and I think, you know, they're not really appreciating the longevity, again, particularly in, in seasonal towns of, of how long we're not going to be able to pay rent for because we won't have had the summer to perform. We're all being told to go and get these BI loans uh, from the government. You've already mentioned the fact that they're not as available as perhaps we would like them to be. But even if they were available, is it realistic to expect companies to go so far into the red over the next 12 to 18 months? Are they going to be able to trade out of that? And is there anything that we can do either around you know, grants or, or, or insurance? Um, I, I think you make some very good points there. I think, you know, the hope is that this has been a steep decline and will be a steep recovery so that any recessionary period is very V-shaped. Um, it should be one where the global economy can bounce back, but it, it will depend upon economies around the world also coming out uh, and, and re-engaging and being able to deliver. Um, I think you know, what you say about businesses being in debt is also true of the government and the UK economy. And I think ministers are mindful of that, that you don't want to hamstring the UK economy to such an extent by bailing out businesses that we can't afford, uh, we need to go through another period of austerity or tax increases just to get through the next few years. Um, so we we need to have that relaxation and support, but it needs to be balanced against what the economy can afford. And the quickest way is to get the economy moving again, as soon as it is safe to do so uh, as a result of public health. Um, I think then cognizant of what goes on in, in coastal towns and seaside resorts and tourist resorts. It's about making sure that any grant support and furlough support is tapered, as I say. Um, and then I do think there is a role both for the landlords, um, where they have the finance opportunities available to them from these government loans. They are able to, to access them. But also, more importantly, the insurance industry. I've seen nobody yet be able to claim against a pandemic insurance or a, a notifiable disease insurance policy. And, and lots of these businesses do have them for these specific set of circumstances. It's not a case of being underinsured. It's the insurers not playing their part. And I do think the insurance industry is going to have to be lent on by the government to help to bail businesses out for a longer period of time. Yeah, it's been pretty shocking. Really. Like the banks have been getting a hard time, but uh, nobody yet really seems to have mentioned this this sort of yeah elephant in the room of the fact that the insurance companies are, are not paying out a penny. Clearly, they mm. cannot support you know to the same level that the government can on a, on a national long term basis. But but to have no support whatsoever from the insurance companies uh, seems incredible. Um, I think you make a good point about the property owners being able to potentially raise finance. You know, they they quite often asset rich and they can raise uh, money at very good rates at the moment. Whereas a lot of restaurateurs are you know. Have got leases there they don't actually have the assets uh to raise the cash so i think it, it is that shared 
responsibility uh, over a longer period of time. And it's great that you're making those points and letting people know that, yeah, 90 days of furlough isn't going to unfortunately get us out of this mess uh, long term. Whilst we appreciate that we don't want to bankrupt the company, it's clearly going to be a lot worse if the third biggest employer in the in the country pretty much goes under in the next uh, in the next 12 months. So um, on the positive side, we've been hearing about some incredible support from the hospitality industry, hotels offering rooms, you know, people delivering food. Uh, what, you know, have you been proud to sort of stand up and represent this community over the last couple of weeks and seen how they've responded? Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I think we are one of the most collaborative, supportive industries um, uh, that, that there is. When I've worked with other sectors, you know, the, the, the lack of support that they give to each other is always astonishing. And you, you come to hospitality and I've, I've never known anybody refuse to help. Um, and I've been overwhelmed over the course of the last two weeks when these are people who are staring business failure in the face, staring, having to make difficult decisions of putting their, their letting their staff go and, and telling s- staff that they can't keep them. And yet, at the same time, every time the government has come and said, would you be able to help? They've volunteered um, and they've also volunteered in their local community. So the number of businesses that are running at sub-economic and sub-commercial entities is just to support the vulnerable people in their community, to give something back, to ease the pressure on retail, to support their retail colleagues, people who are volunteering to cook. Um, It's just been amazing. And I think they are the hidden heroes of what's been going on. And I think it was really good to hear uh, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and the food minister, George Eustace, acknowledging that. Uh, referring to them as being the hidden heroes. Uh, and, and I think one of the ministers yesterday almost described them as the fifth emergency service, that the people working in food are keeping the country going, keeping our spirits up and are helping the most vulnerable in society. Some of the the projects that people have, have set up and, and volunteered to do are just amazing. Um, uh, you know, it make, does make me incredibly proud. It also makes me incredibly humble um, that this is what they're able to do while facing really dark, so it, it makes me even more determined to go back to government and fight for the support that they need to continue doing that and to challenge any of the, the authorities, the banks, the insurance companies who are not providing them with the support and are taking enforcement action against businesses that are doing their best to support our essential services and our key workers. Um, I think longer term as well, um, I don't think any MP could legitimately look any of our members in the eye or myself and talk about our workers as being low skill or low value. Um, I think we've nailed that one um, fundamentally. They find they might be lower skilled than some of the high skilled workers, but boy, do they keep the economy moving and boy, have they proved to be essential through this crisis. Absolutely. I think we've been banging that drum for a long time saying that we may be lower paid, but we're certainly not lower skilled. And, and what yeah. we offer the community, I think, is phenomenal. I think, you know, that when you look at how the banks were bailed out last time, I think if you went to the community and you went to, you, you know, people who use their local bars and their local restaurants, and it's where they have their anniversaries and their birthdays and their weddings, and so much of life and humanity happens around the hospitality sector. Um, there's been this outpouring, I think, you know, on a local level of people offering to buy vouchers or do whatever they yes. can do to support their local business. And I think they'd much rather bail out the hospitality sector than bail out the banks again so it's been nice to see that level of support yeah, and recognition. It, it has uh, and also I think people have realized how integral we are to their daily lives you know just the fact that you 
you know, I've had my my daughter had her 18th birthday at the start of this crisis. And you suddenly look around, go, I have no idea where I can go and what I can do to celebrate her birthday because all of my normal opportunities are gone. Uh, We would normally go and celebrate in the pub. We would normally you know, do her, she could buy her first drink, she's 18. Um, You can't do any of those kind of things in this crisis. And I think that that's what people are realising, how integral the pub, the local independent restaurant, the hotel that they go to, for all of the milestones in their lives, um, it's missing. uh, And it's missing that social connection. Yeah, agree to that. And I think, you know, phenomenal gratitude and outpouring of, of love and respect. And we're all indebted to the NHS and the incredible stuff they're doing. But it's off the back of it. It's been nice to see this. Uh, although we've got social distancing, which I think we're trying to rename physical distancing, actually, to see the community step up and, and to see our sort of social engagement and how we're trying to help each other has been quite reassuring. And I hope we come out uh, the other side, you know, sort of remembering that and supporting that, that you know, all, all of the hospitality, but for me, very much that local independent um, hospitality sector and all the amazing human beings behind it um, i'm very conscious that we i've used a lot of your time and your phone is ringing and you're a very busy lady so where should people go to find out more about uk hospitality and to keep track of what you're up to kate where's the best place for them to go uh well there's two we've got our website which is www.ukhospitality.org.uk and forward slash coronavirus is our dedicated coronavirus website and support page um or follow me on twitter at uk kate Perfect. I will put some links out as well on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk and uh, I follow you online already and I'm cheering from the sidelines for all that you're doing. So thank you so much. One day when this is over, uh, I'd love to chat to you a little bit more about the rest of the work you do and and VAT and all the other projects you've got on over a cup of coffee face to face. But for now, Kate, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. Really appreciate what you're doing and good luck. No problem. Thank you so much. Stay safe, everyone. My goodness, what an impressive uh, whirlwind of energy Kate is. And uh, just, you know, round of applause really for what UK hospitality are doing and achieving in representing the sector. So I hope you found that a useful insight. I was certainly pleased to uh, to hear that we've got governments here uh, and is what what's going on and, and also just excited really to... Um, yeah, to, to realise that there's an appreciation for the British hospitality industry. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it. If you can support this podcast in some way, it would be appreciated. I used to fund this through my bars and restaurants, which unfortunately are now closed. So I've had to lay off the team of, of editors and producers and supporters who used to help me with it. Um, it's just me, but I would love to keep it on the air uh, and bring some of those people back into it uh, later as well. So if you can go to patreon.com forward slash humans of hospitality and, uh, and make a donation or become a patron and become a supporter that will help us uh, stay on the air and be the voice of the UK hospitality industry uh, and chat to some amazing human beings like Kate okay thanks very much Uh, stay safe look after yourselves and uh, we'll be back in touch soon